When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. All right, greetings and welcome to Conflict Radio. Today is April 26, 2021. And today on the show, we've got Varla returning. Varla Ventura, how are you today? I'm delightful. How are you? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm doing pretty good. I, I, um, I have these doves that are nesting on my on my porch, and it's so awesome to uh, to go out there and look at them. Like, like, uh, they'll they'll let me go out there and sit with them. Like, it's literally on Aww. on like on like the table where I would normally put my drinks or whatnot. I had a plant there. And they they went and they nested there. So now I go sit in the chair and I've got these doves next to me, like feeding their little babies and such. It's so cute. So just oh, so everybody that's beautiful. making their little <laughs> cooing noises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's awesome. <laughs> I, I love having them out there. It's uh it's great to see them. I've been trying to decide whether or not to get like a a little cage to maybe keep one of them in the house or something. But I don't know. I I guess I'll just have to let them. You can't separate them. I know, I know. No, not the not the big doves, the little ones. Uh, The babies. (laughs) (laughs) How is that better? I know, I know. I I just I'm going to be heartbroken when they fly away. I guess I've got like another week, week and a half before they're gone. So, so just so everybody knows, Varla Ventura is the author of Varla Ventura's Paranormal Parlor: Ghost Seances and Tales of True Hauntings. She is also the author of five other books on the. On the uh, spooky, ooky stuff, banshees, werewolves, vampires, and other creatures of the night. The Book of the Bazaar, Among the Mermaids, Beyond Bazaar and Fairies, Pokas and Changelings. She can often be found lurking about the deep, dark woods and lakes of Minnesota on the hunt for beastly things and hidden history. You still in Minnesota up there getting cold? I am. It was funny earlier, just before we came on, you had asked if I had my air conditioner on and that would be just opening the window. (laughs) Yes, we're, we're still, we had a a little bit of, um, that white, white stuff falling from the sky. I'm originally from California. So I've spent most of my life in the San Francisco Bay area. So, um, I'm, I'm pretty adjusted to the cold, certainly more than I was a few years ago, but, um, we're just, uh, my friend said it's called false, it's called false spring and it happens every year in Minnesota. You, you know, everything melts and you get really excited and it, things start to green up and, and then it, and then it snows. <laughs> so or, or the second winter, some call it second winter, but I think we're, we're getting, we're getting over it. Well, you can, you can have it. It's all yours. 
Uh, yeah. I'm down here Thanks. in Huntsville, Alabama, the Rocket City, and I think it's 70 degrees, almost 80 degrees out today. It, it feels warm. I've got the air conditioner cranking, and uh, we're doing good. We've got a bunch of people in the chat room. The last time we had you on, I guess it was a few weeks ago, we did a pre-record show. We weren't able to go live for everybody. We did premiere it, and I hung out with everybody that was here. But um, today they'll get to type their questions down for you in the little box here, and then uh, I can read them to you. So so this ought to be pretty interesting, and uh, we've got some great people. Spartan O Negative says he's got his T-shirt. Just so everybody knows, um, Spartan O Negative is a member of our, of our channel. He supports us, and he also supports us with a whole bunch of super chats every now and then. So I went ahead and sent him a free shirt. He apparently got it, and he loves it. So want to give a shout-out to Hot Sauce, Patricia Raul, Tony Fradson, Apex here. I see Blue Chicken in the house. Welcome, everybody. We've got an interesting show today. I see... Chuck Bam and Alien Girl is here. Alien Girl, I'm going to get you scheduled for a show here really soon. We're going to have Alien Girl on the show. Make sure everybody hits that like button and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. I see you, Hugh. I'm glad you're here. Everybody seems to be here that is normally here, so let's get started. The last time I had you on, Varla, we talked about fairies and... And mermaids a little bit, and I wanted to keep things kind of on the light side for that show, and kind of on the dark side for this show. And it turned out that there were a lot. There was a lot about <laughs> fairies that was kind of dark. So yeah. as we get into the so-called dark show, is there anything light about, say, banshees, <laughs> werewolves, and vampires that we could just get out of the way, or or, or are they just all bad? Let's get in at, at the at the cheery level. Yeah. Well, in my defense, I I didn't know you wanted to keep it light. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I, thought, I just best. assumed fairies were great. You know. Um, I mean, there's certainly a lot about vampires and werewolves um, and banshees that are somewhat misunderstood. Um, banshees are actually considered part of the fairy kingdom and they're one of my favorite creatures to talk about. I think they're, they're, um, underestimated and underappreciated. Um, but as far as like light side, I mean, I would say that as in terms of vampires, we have our sort of mythical, um, that sort of lusty mythical vampire of kind of Dracula lore, but I actually have quite a few friends who are vampires and who identify as living vampires and who are, um, you know, not necessarily into drinking blood so much as kind of getting life force from willing donors. And one thing I've learned in being friends with some vamp- with a, a handful of different vampires is that, you know, that vampires, of course, I think everyone out there has probably run into someone that they might classify as a vampire, um, someone who drains their energy and can kind of leave you feeling like really just um, tapped and exhausted um, emotionally and sort of mentally. Um, and that is what a, an ethical vampire would consider sort of an unawakened vampire or, you know, someone else might just say a narcissist. But okay. by and you know, we, we've all run into these types of people. But a lot of the vampires that I know and love um, are actually very, very empathetic people. They frequently come into these sort of ritual, magical elements of vampirism 
um, coming from a spiritual background, perhaps they were interested in um, some of the, the pagan religions or they are practicing witchcraft and they sort of foray into this other um, type of magical um, magical work as a vampire. And so one of my favorite vampires, his, his thing, his name is Father Sebastian, and he and I are friends. And, and um, his, his thing is really about kind of sort of elevating that glamour. Um, many people have probably heard that word glamour, but glamour is actually an old word for magic. And so the glamour of being a vampire, the beauty, the kind of play uh, element of that is not in conflict necessarily with um, the ritual aspects of it and the spiritual enlightenment aspects of it. And so he has a very, I think, a unique but well-followed um, well approach. He's not um, the only person who thinks like this. But there's quite a few, I guess, for lack of a better term, vampire religions, I guess, uh, or religious orders in a sense. Um, that's probably not quite the right way to look at it. Um, it's almost more the way that I view a coven. And they are frequently seeking ways to kind of understand why they are um, empaths and extremely sensitive. Um, by and large, they tend to be very kind and compassionate and actually need to learn a lot about boundaries because they are um, so empathic, it's hard for them to kind of turn that off. And so you have a lot of psychic abilities among the vampire community and a big, um, you know, quest for enlightenment and a feeling of not fitting in and then finding kind of your, your tribe, so to speak. So I guess uh, in terms of living everyday um, vampires and vampire magic, that's a little bit of the lighter side, right? Because we're not talking about a thing that shapeshifts and comes into your room and bites your neck and, and um, gives you a sort of a blood bloodlust and, and disease, right? We're, we're kind of talking about something a little bit more esoteric when it comes to vampires. Okay, so it, it's, not, it's not like what we see, I guess, in like those... Um... Oh, what are those? What are those? Uh, you know, just regular horror movies, vampire movies. Like, are they immortal? So that's an interesting, um, an interesting question because that's something that I've talked with Sebastian at, um, at length about the idea of immortality and the idea that really anyone who is an artist or kind of leaves their mark on the world artist, writer, um, a musician, they, they do actually achieve immortality in a sense, right? Because they're leaving behind something that, um, is a mark of their personality long after they may be gone. So in a way that's a sort of very, you know, uh, again, a very kind of, um, esoteric way of looking at immortality. But I think that there is something very, um, uh, kind of deep in trying to understand what that means to be immortal and why the vampire mythos is so steeped in immortality because your classic vampire is that I think that we think of in modern culture is basically, you know, this kind of um, being that uh, sucks the life out of you, bites you, infects you with this disease, but you are forever with them. So then you develop this kind of immortality. That is, um, it's based on 
some various folk practices and various sort of creatures of the night that came together. And we can we can thank, of course, Bram Stoker for drawing heavily on folklore um, from Scotland as well as from the um, uh, the Romany and um you know, that sort of Transylvanian area where, of course, then we had Vlad the Impaler, who was yeah. this insane um, ruler, uh, th- throwing a little Madame Bathory, who was uh, allegedly known to, uh, you know, bathe in blood of her uh, young servants in order to keep herself young and beautiful, although there's a lot more to that story than that. Now, that's a true story, isn't it? It's a true-ish story. Um, She was accused of doing this. She was convicted of doing this. Um, she was, she had hundreds of, of, uh, people, you know, saying, yes, you know, she was abusive. Now I believe that she was probably a, an abusive employer. However, I've heard a few arguments about the fact that Madame Bathory actually had a lot of power in a time when women did not have a lot of power and she had lands. And so how do you really take that down or take it away from someone And while I don't have, you know, all of the historical records in front of me, something rang very true to me um, about this uh, other perspective about Madame Bathory, because we know full well that this is what happened to mostly women uh, during the witch trials. They had land, perhaps they were widows or they never married. Um, or they were set to inherit a large amount of land or some other kind of property, and they became the scapegoats, and that property was seized. So I, when I, I was actually on a, um, I think it was Aaron Mankey's Lore podcast, I was listening to his, him talk about um, Madame Bathory, and I really liked what he had to say about it, because it was a perspective that I had kind of contemplated myself, um, just the deeper you get into these myths, you start wondering what is at play here and who was writing these down. So I remain, while I think it's, you know, this kind of marvelously horrific story that we love to retell, um, I'm not convinced that she did actually do everything they said she did, but it was convincing enough that they took everything away from her and sort of walled her up in her own castle. So, and in fact, the person, and I don't have the names in front of me, so you have to do a little um, research, but the person who led the charges against her stood the most to gain from her property. They were like distant Duke cousins or something. So... Yeah, you know, that, that's always uh, that's always something like when the when the prosecution has a, I guess some skin in the game, right? A bias, yeah. <laughs> what prosecution with bias? We've never heard of that. That doesn't happen. <laughs> that doesn't happen. <laughs> this corruption goes way back, doesn't it? <laughs> All the way back. <laughs> so, I guess the so the so the people that say they're vampires today. They don't really have any of these characteristics, right? Like, like the the, I guess I, you know, you see a lot of them that you know they make their own teeth now, you know, at, at the dentist, you know, they they do that themselves, you know, a, a lot of these uh, so-called vampires today, but they don't actually have like 
say the strength and weaknesses of the story time vampires, right? Well, I mean, I think that there are certainly some people who live in that kind of like donor, um, donor, donee, whatever the words are, but like the person who's donating the energy or the life force and the person who is taking that. And, um, it's not, it's actually very similar to some of the relationships that people have in the BDSM community. There's actually a lot of crossover there where the person in power may be the person who's looked at as the person who isn't in power. And there's a lot of kind of, um, power dynamics there. Um, yeah, but you, you know, you can't, I mean, you, there can't, are certain... you can't throw garlic or, you know, at or throw <laughs> holy water on a narcissist, right? <laughs> I mean, you can. <laughs> I'm sure some of us have tried. You can just throw all kinds of things in a narcissist. Everything just deflects right off of them. <laughs> yeah. It's infuriating. <laughs> try the silver, try the silver bullet. <laughs> yeah, just yeah, it's more. It's like it becomes like rubber. <laughs> I'm rubber. You're glue. <laughs> so, so what? The, so, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. Like, like, uh, you know, they they go after the energy and stuff, but, but they they really aren't vampires, right? Well, I mean, that is the closest thing to a vampire that is around today. I mean, really, other than, of course, the like vampire bat and you know, you know mosquitoes. There aren't a lot of things that that suck blood um, and that actually really kind of fit that, that, um, you know, that description. It's actually a pretty fantastical beast in many ways because you have very, very, very old stories of um, vampires. Um, you even have, you have Lilith, you have, you know, these kind of ideas of this sort of devilish evil woman um, one of my favorite stories is actually one of the first vampire um, stories ever written, and it's this story called Le Morte Amarus or um, Claremond, and it was written in the uh, it was written in French and then translated in the late 1800s, and it's the story of this priest who goes into um, you know he's in the church and he's basically on the precipice of making his final vows. When, you know, something blows in on the wind and the door of the church swings open and this woman comes in and it's this woman named Claremond. And she is basically like the ultimate temptation and makes him reconsider everything he's ever known about himself and spirituality. And this is sort of the vampire itself is kind of knocking you off its feet. And then the story gets very dark. And quite frankly, there's a little necrophilia involved. So it's quite racy, especially for something that was actually translated during the Victorian era into English. Um, but you have a lot of these kinds of stories where, um, you know, all kinds of things that we know about vampires have some trace of truth in them. For example, if you think of Nosferatu and you think of that, the vampire kind of arms across the chest, rising slowly out of the grave um, or out of the coffin, that was something that happened. Rigor mortis would set in and then grave robbers would be running around, uh, you know, prying open coffins, trying to either take the bodies for uh, scientific experiments or medical experiments, or they might actually just be looking for jewelry or what have you. 
And of course, you know, there's this, um, this, this corpse kind of sits up in its coffin. You're talking about something that would be laid out in a crypt or possibly even buried underground. And are you going to run screaming and say that you just tried to grave rob? No, you're going to run screaming and say that you saw a vampire and then people will go and inspect that and say, um, well, this person didn't age. So much of this we uh, can can be attributed to things that we know actually happen in med- in in like you know the medical record. But of course, people didn't know that then. They didn't know anything about rigor mortis or the state of decomposition or how certain conditions like cold or dryness um contributed to um you know bodies not decomposing as quickly yeah well all right well so that's not light (laughs) yeah it just it just seems like there's there's not really any real vampires right that's kind of disappointing right well, I mean, I suppose it depends on who you ask. I mean, you can go back in time and find all kinds of stories that are very vampiric. And you, just as you can find, um, you know, plenty of stories about werewolves that are quite convincing. You also have a miss. Um, so another vampire that I know who actually wrote a book about vampires, um, he talked about how his ancestors who were Romani actually lived with this kind of like relationship with the landowner in which the, the, the people would come and they could stay for free and kind of, you know, make their camp on this land without being harassed or squat on the land. And in exchange, they would send someone up to like the Lord of the manor um, in exchange. So, and of course that would usually be a young, beautiful woman. Um, now, yeah, you could say, oh, he's a vampire and he's preying upon her energy, but more than likely he's, you know, a creepy old dude with a lot of money and he's like basically buying some company. So, um, you can just kind of see all of these parallels and, you know, actually a lot of the living vampires that I know completely love the... Um, mythology and the, um, you know, the lore around vampires, but don't actually believe that vampires are real. They, they, they believe that they're a sort of uh, icon for immortality and for, um, you know, uh, shared energy. So, I mean, a living vampire would probably defend themselves and say that they're psychic vampires and they, you know, they are a vampire. But, I mean, you could kind of say the same thing about witches, right? Like, we all know that there are people out there who have otherworldly powers that we can't quite put our finger on. And um, plenty of people that practice witchcraft. Plenty. Plenty. So, you know, then you can't very well say that a witch isn't real, right? When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, sorry. I was I was coughing, so I had to turn the mic down for a second. Now, you were coughing? Yeah, yeah I was. <laughs> I had to turn the microphone down. <laughs> Yeah, I was coughing. <laughs> so I guess the people that are saying that they're vampires today, I mean, it's kind of like they just, I mean, they're really something else. They just kind of took the name maybe, right? Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. So. I mean, there are people that believe just as there are people that believe that they are werewolves and there's actually a medical condition called lycanthropy in which someone believes themselves to be a werewolf. People used to be institutionalized for this. Um, that That's a it's it's a condition in the book of conditions that you can have lycanthropy it doesn't mean that you are a werewolf. It means that you believe you are a werewolf. And just in that same vein, there are people who believe that they're vampires. You know, they do they do actually prey upon people, bite them. But most vampires that I know are, like, totally cool and don't prey upon yes, anyone. It's not like they there's just, a, a real lost the boys. Plot, you know, they don't, they, don't want, they don't want your contamination. They want your – they want, they want willing um, – They just identify like, with being a vampire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I identify yeah. with being a vampire, so I'm a vampire now. <laughs> yeah, there, but there are people, of course, that have, you know, um, medical conditions or, like, psych- psychiatric conditions in which they believe that vampires are, you know, that they are a vampire. Um, you know, just, just right. like someone could become a serial killer. All right. But it's it's not like we have, like, a a real Edward out there running around. You know, in in the forests of of Washington, I guess. I don't know. Now, we say that, but there's some pretty interesting stuff, especially in um, some of the Russian folklore about um, where the word vampire kind of comes from, vampire or um, vampire. There are some pretty creepy stories about not anything that looks like a handsome man that transforms, it's um, usually a much more kind of uh, terrifying creature that, you know, moves among the trees that you don't want to be caught out in the woods at night. So I I think we're, when we think of vampires, we think of this kind of more pop culture. But there are some very, very old, very terrifying things that are kind of, you know, equated with vampires. And I think in um, some of the... Russian folklore, especially, you'll find some pretty freaky stories. Well, could you tell us any? Well, there's tell us one... a really good scary story. Let's see. I let me let me just like glance in the book real quick because I want to make sure that I don't mess it up. All right. While <laughs> you're doing this... that, I'll give a shout out to everybody in the uh, in the chat room. I love I love you, Amber Pell is in here. Patricio, hello. Tony Franston, hello. 
I guess uh, I've said hi to uh, mostly everybody in here now. Let's see. Boo, uh, boo, 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 boo. Apex, Patricio, Tony, John Paul Shelton's in the house. Patricio Rule. All right, so everybody's in here. Just give a uh, give a like on that video if you don't mind. And um, I guess when we're done talk, when when you get done with your scary story, I want to talk about werewolves because I think that werewolves are probably more like realistic than vampires are, don't you think? Yeah, like to in many ways. Going on. Uh, yes, in many ways, I'd say that werewolves are kind of more realistic and. Um, you can almost see, especially, well, well, we'll get into those, but you can see a lot of parallels of why this kind of shape, these kind of shapeshifters um, exist and what you actually can kind of um, uh, understand from them. And also, I think we have some more slightly modern sightings of things like, um, you know, the, the, dog man and kind of things along along those lines so i'm trying to find okay so here's a couple of pretty freaky um okay okay this is a pretty scary one this is actually from this is actually quite disturbing all right so you don't have any like FCC regulations or anything, right? <laughs> no, do, <laughs> Just do tell us. Do tell us a story. It's okay. Um, if, if you guys don't want to hear a scary story that's disturbing, you can leave. Yeah, I mean these leave aren't now. that bad. These aren't really that bad. I'm trying to find one of the one of the Russian ones, but I can't find it in here. So. I'll just give you a few examples. Um, so uh, just going back to like that word. Vampire. So the word vampire made its appearance. I'm reading from my book. So if it sounds like I'm reading, I am, but at least it's something I wrote. The word vampire made its appearance in the common lexicon circa 1734. But in early literature, it appears with the spelling V-A-M-P-Y-R-E or vampire. Many scholars believe the word comes from the Hungarian vampir or Turkish umpir, meaning witch. Today's vampire isn't just the coffin-sleeping, tuxedo-wearing, pale-skinned vamp of yore. Okay, so then I'm kind of talking about the more modern vampires. Here's a few, like, kind of disturbing stories from uh, days of old. Right. In the, um, this one's called Takes a Lot of Heart. In the winter of 1892, a 19-year-old girl from Rhode Island named Mercy Brown died unexpectedly from an unknown illness. Soon after her death, people from the community started seeing her walking around town. They dug up her body in the spring to find it looked very much alive, and they promptly removed her heart to prevent her from wandering. That's sort of one of those examples I was talking about where, you know, she was frozen underground for the winter. Yeah. So, um, there's a Vlad the Impaler. That's not that exciting. So, she um, came so, back? So, they said they saw her walking around town. So, they went and dug her grave up pulled her body out, removed her heart, pulled her body out, found that she was not very decomposed and, um, you know, buried her back in the ground after removing her heart. You actually have all kinds of um, interesting things like um, in Italy, they have found quite a few um, forensic archaeologists have actually found some sites where you will find a body um, 
and they found one that was from the 1500s where the body has a brick in the mouth and the brick in the mouth was said to be a way to prevent the um, person from coming back and being a vampire or that they were suspected of being a vampire. Wow. Uh, it was believed that the 1517, 1576 mass grave found in Italy in 2006 was caused by the Venetian plague that wrecked havoc across the country at the time. During medieval times, plague victims were commonly buried and then unburied as new bodies had to be added to the grave sites. Every now and then, grave diggers would find corpses that they had that had blood seeping out of their mouths and noses. They believed these signs pointed to vampirism and that the corpses were spreading the plague. Well, that's probably kind of true. And then they would put bricks or rocks into their mouths to stop the plague from spreading further. But there's a premature burial element, too, here that we, you know, we'd be remiss to not talk about, that people were frequently, um, well, maybe not frequently, but it was more common than it is today, um, were buried alive or were laid out in a, um, in a, a crypt and thought to be dead because of either a disease or poisoning or a coma that they would sometimes wake up from. So All right. that also, I think, really contributed to the idea of vampires and of zombies. Um, and then yeah, I guess that... I'll just kind of recap one because I can't find it in the book, but I know there's one about this. And I, I read a beautiful, um, a beautiful short uh, or a beautiful novel recently called The Bear and the Nightingale. It's been out for a while and it's very heavy in um, uh, Russian folklore. And it's pretty interesting, actually, anyone who's interested in fairies or any kind of those like otherworldly creatures, it really gets a lot into the Russian folklore and the kind of like heart, the little guy that lives by the hearth and the things that are in the woods. But um, in it, there's a woman who can speak with all of these creatures and they don't harm her because they actually um, they, you know, she can speak with them, but they harm others around her. And that sort of vampire is, you know, there's a couple different versions. One is something that I've heard um, modern tellings calling it the Burr Woman. And essentially, it's a little sort of furry creature that um, hides from tree to tree as you're walking and tends to sort of track you. So you don't necessarily know that it's behind you. And it watches you for a while and then at some point when you don't expect it it has superhuman strength and speed and it leaps and it kind of latches onto your back like a burr and the burr woman is like you know completely just sucks the life out of you basically drains all of your life like just kind of like a giant tick really but furry and creepy I've heard variations on this from indigenous California all the way to um, parts of Russia and um, even in some of the Scandinavian countries of this sort of sycophantic creature that is usually smallish and furry, 
often considered female that can kind of scurry behind you from tree to tree, shadow to shadow until it latches onto you. And once it's drained you and basically left you for dead, it slowly detaches itself and waits for its next victim. Oh, wow. And what's that called? Does anybody come up with a name for that creature? Well, the first time I heard it, I heard a, a story about it at a storytelling festival about called the Burr Woman. And so it's called all all kinds of things. Some people do refer to it as a vampire or a thing in the woods. Um, there's a lot of different names for it, but it's this kind of um, uh, fairly aggressive creature that can um, be found in, in, you know, woods around the world. So I don't know if anybody has names, yeah, like they've heard anything yeah. similar and they have a a name or, or a, because that's one thing that I learned in writing the book about fairies in particular is that there's a lot of different names for things that are similar, but from different parts of the world. And, you know, our, our language is limited because we're, you know, mushing together some, um, you know, we're missing to get wishing together some Gaelic and some old German and um, some indigenous languages that, you know, everything kind of comes together and is can, can kind of overlap. Like you have goblins and you have hobgoblins and things like that. I think we talked about that a little bit. Yeah. Hobgoblins are awesome. So Kayla says, aren't the Fae in a separate realm? I guess asking you a question. So I consider vampires and um, to be kind of more mythical or supernatural creatures. I wouldn't necessarily put all um, like what we think of as the modern vampire into the kingdom of the fairy. Um, But there are banshees certainly fall in the kingdom of the fairy and there are all kinds of other sort of strange creatures that do fall in that realm that kind of cryptid um supernatural world um so i don't know if you know depending on the folklore there's vampire like things i mean the banshee is sometimes thought of as a vampire but it's really not i think it gets that um just Oh, let me just define what a banshee is, because I think that's probably one of the least known of the kind of supernatural creatures out there. Um, the banshee is, it literally translates to of the fairy mound. And it's essentially like technically a banshee is Irish. It comes from old Irish, but there are counterparts to the banshee all around the world. Um, But in particular, by the Irish definition, the banshee is sort of, it almost straddles the world between a ghost and a fairy. Although in Celtic mythology, these things all kind of dwell in the same um, invisible world that's around us. And the banshee is essentially a warning creature. Um, You can hear the scream or the cry of the banshee. Occasionally, you might see the banshee. And it means that someone that you love is going to either fall gravely ill or more likely than that die. So it's not something you want to see, but frequently is sort of inherited from family to family, either the ability to hear or see the Banshee or the Banshee. Some people think the Banshee follows the family. 
when it's seen, it's often seen as a woman, um, somewhat attractive, but until you get, you know, until it gets close and screams in your face um, with wild hair, occasionally it will be depicted as a sort of little old lady walking down the, the lane, somewhat approachable and um, then sort of transforms into this screaming beast. I have heard stories of people seeing disembodied heads that are screaming, that they believe are banshees that they've seen in their family. Someone not long ago wrote to me about a cry that it was heard in his um, his in-laws family that sounded more like a cat, and that's how the family referred to it, and it always meant that someone in the family was going to die. They'd get a phone call. So these are like more, even more modern times in other cultures. Um, like for example, in Italy, you frequently have stories of the woman in white who will appear in certain castles to indicate that death is nigh. Um, you have La Llorona who is this, you know, sort of bloody washerwoman. Um, you have the washerwoman from, from, uh, Scottish lore, who's often seen like wringing out bloody rags in a, in a Creek and to see her can be, um, an omen of death. Yeah. Patricio Raul says that she can be seen washing her gown in a small stream. Yes. And usually like washing, washing like the blood out. And some people believe that she's washing the blood of, children or um she's washing the blood of um dead soldiers that's common in the scottish lore especially because there were so many bloody battles so would a banshee Uh, be considered a good creature or or a bad creature i guess i mean kind of neutral like they don't (laughs) right like i mean you neutral i mean there are there are few (laughs) So the banshees themselves do not cause death, although there are a couple of accounts of people feeling like they've gone mad and, you know, just sort of losing it or, um, you know, being so scared they jump off a cliff or something like that. You have a handful of those stories. And you also have, um, you know, one of the one of the people who's done the most uh, uh, research on banshees in Ireland is a man named Elliot O'Donnell, who was a writer kind of um, around the same time as William Butler Yeats. But he was very interesting because he wrote a lot about banshees as well as werewolves and um, ghosts. And while during that sort of, um, you know, the late 1800s and the um, turn of the 20th century there, it was very common to kind of collect these stories and share them and retell them. He had the very unique perspective in that he had been haunted since and seen ghosts since he was a child. So he didn't come at it with such um, the skeptical point of view. And I think I mentioned before that a lot of times this written record was written, was recorded by um, like a man of the cloth who would have a very specific kind of point of view and in recording these um, quote unquote, you know, old folk tales, old wives tales. And so because often men of the cloth had the ability, the means to travel and the means to learn to read and write and record things and publish things. So anyway, Elliot O'Donnell, he did a lot of research on banshees. His family, there's an O'Donnell banshee um, that was seen 
um, you know, throughout his childhood, he heard stories of this. He'd seen numerous ghosts. Um, he actually did a bunch of research on, on werewolves as well. Uh, but he kind of defines them as not necessarily bad, but there are malevolent banshees who can really wreak havoc, um, not necessarily causing physical harm, but they can, you know, whip through your house and kind of destroy things in a tornado like fashion. So, uh, but not necessarily uh, evil per se. I mean, nothing in the fairy kingdom is really evil. It's certainly not all, you know, shimmering light. And a lot of it is mischievous. And some of it can be very, very dangerous and, um, you know, threatening. But uh, the whole concept of good versus evil is a, you know, that's a Christian ideology. And we're talking about beliefs that predate Christianity. So... It's, you know, uh, evil is a modern, (laughs) and by modern, I mean, you know, 500 years or whatever, but it's a more modern, it's a more modern view. What evil is, yeah? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Kayla has a question. She says that, I heard that the Banshee is strongly connected to five certain Irish families. Is that true? Yes. Um, And so... Actually, Elliot O'Donnell has had a whole essay about his family and the banshee that they inherited. And, you know, once upon a time, there were really kind of like a core number of clans or or families in Ireland. And um, people were kind of, you know, lived around those castles. And so you would this is the thing that I don't know. And I don't know that anyone can say definitively. Did the place, like the castle, there's a O'Donnell Banshee now, but not everyone sees it. So I think it's more likely that the ability to see it is something that's inherited, just as many of us have, um, you know, may have psychic abilities that we have inherited from our grandparents or from our parents. Um, you know, that second sight, that ability to kind of see ghosts or um, have those um, premonitions. And I think that seeing the Banshee kind of goes along with it. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free and Anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So you kind of have to be related to these five families to see it? No, no, not necessarily. I think that once upon a time, that's how it was. And so that's how it was viewed as them being connected specifically to those families. Okay. Now, I think that things are much more dissipated and people, there are more people who have those abilities. I I think that still happens. But what I'm saying is I think that you inherit the ability to see it, not necessarily 
the creature itself. But, you know, that's six of one, half a dozen of the other. You can't really know that, right? That's, yeah. that's. All right. So, so what is their relationship with changelings? What's, what's a changeling mm-hmm. and, and is there so, a relationship there? Yeah. So changelings are the fairy switch They're It's basically, you know, kidnapping a human child and leaving a fairy baby in exchange. Um, so there's not really a direct relationship with a banshee and a changeling other than that. They are kind of all considered part of those dangerous, um, uh, supernatural fairy creatures. And the changeling is sometimes a changeling can, it can happen to a person when they're older. Um, you know, a, a teenager or a young person can be lured into the fairy kingdom and, um, supplanted with, you know, liquor and, and, um, uh, food and sort of enchanted into staying into that other realm, into that fairy kingdom. Um, a modern metaphor of that would be drug addiction, really, uh, if you think about it. Um, but I think that you have a um, you have that sort of temptation of the person wanting to kind of explore this other world. But in terms of the changeling itself, the changeling would be literally a fairy baby left in exchange for the the human baby. Um, do we, most do most people are I, I most people okay with that? Well, I will say that again, just going back to that idea that we know a lot more medically today than we knew then, and so sometimes certain birth defects were labeled as being of the other realm of being a fairy, and that was considered either could be considered a blessing, it could be considered a disadvantage. Um, you have. A spectrum of stories about it. You have stories of mothers, you know, pulling themselves out of the childbirth bed and chasing after, um, you know, the fairies into the fairy, going to like the fairy mound or the the known fairy fort and demanding their child back. You have people who just raise the child as if it's their own and don't question it, even though it always seems a little off. You have people who have been uh, come back from the fairy kingdom and gained the second sight and the ability to see the fairies and never quite, you know, quite the same, but have some uh, sort of otherworldly properties um, like, you know, the ability to have the beautiful voice or play music that kind of transcends the 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 mortal earth. So there's a whole range of how fairies are treated. Anyone who has ever read the um, outlander or seen the outlander, there's a, there's a fairy, there's a changeling scene in that, um, in that series where basically someone leaves the baby out because they believe it's a changeling. And so they leave it out for the fairies to come and take it back and put the proper baby in exchange. And of course the lead character is horrified because she's like a nurse from the modern era and can't believe that there's a a baby left alone on this mound and goes to rescue it. And then everyone thinks she's a witch. So, you know, kind of, so, so do you do? So, What's wrong with the with the with I guess the berry, the the fairy baby that they're giving it up and taking a human? Do they do they want to just swap out? Like like why are they doing that? <laughs> yeah, just you know, eye for an eye. Um, 
Well, I think because there's a more of a desire to have that human baby live in the fairy realm and kind of like have that power over the uh, the humans. I mean, uh, the stories that I've read are not unlike people's accounts of being abducted by aliens. Like, why would you why would aliens abduct us? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Right. And yet you have people swearing that they've had these experiences. Right. So um, oh, I think there's reason, a little bit of there's reasons for the alien abduction. So right, but there, but some say, but by the <laughs> yeah. same by that same token, then you have um, why fairies might want a certain person or a certain soul. They might want that person to um, intermarry. They might might want that person to help them sort of infiltrate into the mortal world. I mean, that's completely part of the fairy mythos and the fairies are feared. They're not, again, I, I'll, I'll reiterate, they're not necessarily evil, but they are feared and frequently not spoken about and actually quite um, feared because of these kinds of powers. But by and large, changelings can be, um, you know, they can be explained in a, all, all different kinds of ways, but a lot of, uh, uh, for the most part, you end up with people who raise a changeling as if it's their own. And you know, are, the, there, are there records of them doing that? Like, like, uh, what? Yeah, what's but I mean, it's all of... the folkloric record. It's people saying, "Oh, so and so was a changeling." So it's and it's you know what what a person was identified as a changeling and so was raised. That, There's hundreds of stories of changelings. Did that person turn out to be a horrible person or, or what? No, like, not necessarily. They tend to eat a lot or grow fast or have a, some other kind of like strange defect. Frequently they were considered to have um, supernatural and psychic powers and healing powers and, and were considered to be, you know, sort of witches or shamans. Um, and have that kind of role in in a group. It just sort of depended on how they were, um, hmm. you know, where, where they were. And that's that you you see that again and again that um, witches are the ones that have the ability to commune with the fairies and um, actually can interact with them. And and one one thing to remember is that you know if you're thinking about the fairies like you're just going to sit in the woods and this pretty little thing's going to land on your arm you're not quite grasping what the fairy kingdom really is and again and again you have stories of people going into the fairy kingdom via a cave via a fort sitting on a mound and going into a meditative or trance-like state usually at least originally to try and find some kind of resolve to find a solution for a problem that their people are facing just as you have with many many other mythos and hero stories you have the idea that it's sort of a quest and that you can ask the fairies for guidance but it's not to be entered into lightly right like not just anyone's going to go into this cave and who knows all manner of things that they might run into could be three headed werewolves or, you know, terrifying, um, kind of creatures that, that, um, don't let them go or shapeshifters. There's all, there's all kinds of things, those things that all come out on Halloween night. So you go into this realm to, to actually seek guidance and, and seek solutions or to, um, you know, get better crops 
or bring back lost children or whatever the things are that you're doing. So rather than looking at it like, you know, this kind of, I mean, it is a, a, a place to be feared, but it also was once considered a, um, a necessity to commune with these things. And, you know, today people go and sit in church and commune with an unknown entity, and that doesn't seem very weird to people. Yeah, yeah that's the truth. They sure do, don't they? Now, uh, <laughs> Patricio says, and I don't mean to stay on this whole fairy thing. I, it's funny how that happens. But uh, <laughs> Patricio put a good comment in here I wanted to uh, run by you. John DeLorean, you know the DeLorean guy who made the DeLorean car? She, uh, they say that he was warned not to uproot a fairy tree as he built his car factory. Did you have you ever heard of that oh. story? I didn't know that, but that's super cool, and I have heard of those kinds of things happening. They still happen today in Iceland, Ireland, all over the place. That you don't, you don't, you know, don't build there. Kind of. Um, I actually just read recently about a school that was moved over because of a, um, a fairy fort. And so the plans they hadn't taken into account. In fact, I was listening to something not long ago and that there was like this one Irish fellow was talking about how, you know, if you ask a hundred Irish people, if they believe in fairies, they'll deny it. But if you ask a hundred Irish people to go sit under a fairy tree in the middle of the night, they're going to say, no, <laughs> no way. And so while there may not be as much kind of modern day belief, there are still these old ways of kind of, you know, working around fairy trees, um, sacred mounds, um, those fairy forts, things like that. Now, some people think that those places also mark ley lines. So they mark parts of the energy grid that are really um, places where things can come together and you can actually find um answers or commune with otherworldly beings or you know um off planet whatever so there's there's a lot of reasons behind um why some of those places were built do you think that some of the some of the things that priests or or i guess uh catholic church priests or pastors that's some of the things that they do in, in tradition is to, is to ward off fairies. Yeah. Well, you know, Catholicism is pretty interesting because especially in, you know, in, in places like Ireland where there were all of these traditional beliefs about fairies. And then you had the, you had the Celts and then you had the uh, Vikings coming down with their very sort of, um, folkloric or, or um, kind of what, what were viewed by the Catholics as superstitious beliefs about gods and little creatures and things like that. And you had these cultures already kind of colliding. And then you had the Roman Catholic Church with the monotheistic, like one God. And so you had a lot of holidays that things would kind of overlap. So, you know, Halloween, Samhain, which was the pagan, you know, ritual, the Celtic ritual of sort of banishing away all, you know, all of the ghoulies for going into the cold of the winter and celebrating the harvest and kind of um, letting it be the night in which witches can run amok and such. And then you just happen to have a couple of, you know, All Saints Day right, right around that time. <laughs> so there were um, times when I think that 
the in order to convert people or to get people to come into the church, they are kind of offering these very, very similar but not quite the same holidays that also, you know, frequently come with a bit of, you know, well, free food or something like that to get get people into the church. So um, there's definitely like, um, I mean, I don't, I don't know about the, I mean, I will be the first to admit uh, the, my extent of knowledge about Catholicism is mostly sort of book learned and a couple of funerals and a wedding, right? I'm not a Catholic. I'm not a practicing Catholic. I wasn't raised Catholic. Um, My mom was raised Catholic. She did not raise me Catholic at all. Um, so my view of the Catholic church is probably somewhat ignorant. I'm willing to admit, but I do know that, uh, historically a lot of these, uh, holidays that are still practiced today that are considered very sacred Catholic holidays are, um, uh, you know, based on original pagan holidays. And so there's, I'm sure some superstitions that go along with that eggs, for example, uh, Easter eggs, that would be one that I, I know was um, sort of a pagan fertility ritual. And the painting of eggs and decorating of eggs actually goes back to Ukrainian witches. And then the um, church commandeered them as a symbol of life, which they are. And of course, we know the story of Easter and the whole zombie resurrection and such. that's the best zombie story in history right yeah i I guess so right like back back from the dead huh Uh (laughs) so i guess uh well guys if you have any questions uh feel free to drop them in the chat we're coming up on uh i guess about 30 minutes left i I do want to talk about werewolves a little bit where where did they originate from like obviously we we figured out vampires or you know, you had the whole Vlad the Impaler and that that woman that she was absolutely nuts, bathing in in um, I guess all the all the blood of of young allegedly. people. Allegedly, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> allegedly, yeah. Where where does werewolves come from? You know, you know what I just realized as you were starting to talk about werewolves is that um, it's well, I don't know if everyone's listening live, but it's full moon tonight. Oh, is it? There we go. Couldn't be more more perfect. Um, Well, one of the... So werewolves are very interesting because you actually have werewolf stories from around the world. Uh, They are more prevalent in places, naturally, where there's a heavy wolf population, of course, or was a heavy wolf population, So you have a lot of werewolves in North America and as well as the Scandinavian and Nordic countries. Um, So there's, you know, Finnish and Norwegian um, and Swedish werewolves. You have some in parts of Europe and um, some kind of old German. Once upon a time, there were werewolves. There were wolves in Ireland. Um, There are, of course, aren't anymore. So you do have these kind of werewolf stories, but then you also have similar things that are shapeshifters um, or sort of dog-like creatures in other parts of the world as well. I've even heard stories of were dolphins and um, in you know the southern southern hemisphere. People who turn Uh, into dolphins. 
Yeah, very similar. Very similar. Yes. Uh, turning into sort of a dolphin or a shark and um, not being able to kind of control your that that uh, shape shifting happens around full moon and frequently someone gets hurt. <laughs> Um, but you also have like the chupacabra in um, Mexico and Central America. You have very you, so it, you kind of have these shape shifting werewolf like things in other places. But most werewolves are um, based in um, North America and in um, like the northern parts of Europe. And one of the earliest stories, interestingly, comes from um, indigenous sort of what we now know as Wisconsin. And what's what's also what's particularly interesting about that is because is because there's this most people have probably heard of the Beast of Bray Road, which is a road in Wisconsin in northern Wisconsin where people have seen quite a few werewolves over the years. Um, I think I don't know much later than the 1950s, but there's this um, there's this legend of this Beast of Bray Road, and there's a there's books about it. And I think someone made a, a really awesome movie about it. So there's a lot of legends around this kind of werewolf like area, um, in Wisconsin. So the, one of the first nation stories there or first people's stories in, in Wisconsin, um, which is largely in, I think what is Ojibwe territory, but, I'm not 100% sure if I've got that right. Um, but there's quite a few shapeshifters in um, Indigenous America. So one of the stories is in Wisconsin, and it's basically about this um, uh, this group that was this these Indigenous shapeshifters. And there was a spirit that guided them. It was a wolf spirit, and it was named Wiskakachek. And... Wiskakachek actually was very friendly with humans and very friendly with animals. And the story is that it was a very hard winter and there were two young men who were out hunting and Wiskakachek offered them the um, power to shapeshift and turn into wolves in order to hunt more effectively and feed everyone um, in their group. And so they, he, he kind of showed up, they, um, he, they had almost nothing to eat, but they offered him, he looked like a lonely traveler and they offered him some of their, their meat and he sat and he ate with them on the fire and in exchange, he gifted them with this ability to hunt as werewolves. But there was a caveat, of course, the condition was that for the boys that they could only use the um, wolf personalities to hunt for food. They could never use it to turn on another human. Well, as things would as things would go, months go by and they're able to use these new powers, transform, feed their group. Um, but. Now, some stories say there was a young maiden involved. Others say that it was just sort of a misunderstanding. But essentially, um, the, the two boys got in a fight. And during that fight, again, 
Some say it was to win the hand of a maiden. Others say they were just irritating each other, mm-hmm. as you know can happen with brothers. And they got in a fight, and one of them shapeshifted into a wolf in order to win the fight and tore apart the um, the other person. Didn't kill him, but they were then punished, and both of them were banished, and they were banished to never be part of the group again. That was pretty much it. They had to live this lonely life as a werewolf. That's one of the earliest werewolf legends, um, and so that this werewolf would occasionally appear um, you know, lonesome and howling on the edge of the forest or nearby the group, but never able to actually enter back in. And you have this idea again and again of Okay, we we kind of like lust after the vampire. Maybe we fear the banshee. We fear the witches. But the werewolf, we feel kind of sorry for, right? Like historically, we feel kind of bad. I mean, Teen Wolf, you feel bad for him, right? Like he yeah. doesn't <laughs> he doesn't mean to hurt anyone. So um, you have this kind of idea of that lonesome wolf that is separated from its pack. And the, you know, having this sort of um, sympathy for the werewolf. But there's all kinds of stories of, um, you know, there's there's one medieval story of this woman who completely tears her husband apart, actually completely murders him and chops off all of his limbs. And when they come and find her in the morning, she says she transformed into a werewolf. And in fact, they find a little pouch you know, sewed to the inside of her skirt that has, you know, some kind of lycanthropic medicine um, plants in it. And uh, they, you know, of course, try her and and hang her for um, transforming into a werewolf and killing her husband. Now, what's really interesting about the werewolf. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I mentioned before Elliot O'Donnell, there was another man named Sabine Baring Gould, and he wrote a whole huge book about werewolves. He was a reverend. He wrote Onward Christian Soldiers, actually, is what he's known for, that hymn. But he was really interested in werewolves. And they both recorded a lot of ceremonies and rituals that they did not fully understand. And Sabine Baring Gould, in particular, traveled um, throughout some of the Scandinavian countries and witnessed a lot of rituals he did not understand. This was the donning of skins and dancing around the fire in order to protect the harvest or get ready for a battle. And there's certainly some Viking-like rituals in there. 
um, you see this around the world, the uh, donning of skins and the idea of shape-shifting and transforming by connecting with and honoring these animals. So, um, but he also talks about the fact that people can kind of snap and he equates it a little bit to that, you know, the idea of, um, you know, going completely angry and seeing red and not necessarily being in control of your emotions. And for some people that takes, oh, takes over and becomes a more furious transformation, which he then argues is the foundation for transforming into a beastly thing that can destroy another human or take another human's life and then come back from it full of regret and confusion. So it's kind of interesting. He talks a lot of also about hormonal imbalances and pregnancy, which is probably why that book didn't really take off. <laughs> but so, you know, there's... so they're saying that uh, the woman turns into a werewolf uh, once a month when, when she gets yeah. uh yeah, there's there's some there's some there's he, he skirts around it in a very boring way. But, yeah, he talks about, um, you know, pregnant women and their cravings or something like that. It was like, oh, dude, you just you were so close. Yeah, you lost um, me. <laughs> almost got it. Almost got it. Um, but it is a really interesting argument. And it's interesting because he uses that as the foundation for his argument that werewolves are real. He also um Account, he, he has uh, endless accounts of lycanthropic streams, streams that you can drink from and that will transform you into a werewolf. Now, I read that and I thought, Giardia, right? Or some other kind of like weird thing in the stream that isn't clean that makes you hallucinate and freak out. Yeah. But he also talks about berserkers, which were, you know, Viking warriors who would basically like completely work themselves up into these frenzies and, you know, smear themselves with blood and grease and animal skins. And that's why we use and even use the word berserk, right? Because they would get into this like furious heightened state that would just terrify their enemies. Um, some people think that they were on, uh, ephed, you know, some sort of ephedrine. So, um, Sabine Baringold actually has the account of several, uh, lycanthropic plants and antidotes that you can take to kind of <laughs> come down, I guess. Um, so it's pretty interesting. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, uh, different cultures that have the lore of the shapeshifters. Yeah. The shapeshifters are definitely an interesting topic and, and you got to wonder, I mean, it all comes from something, right? Every, every myth or story comes from some kind of truth, right? Yeah, and I think that it's it's kind of talking about playing with our perception of reality and and um you know, when people talk about interdimensional travel or being able to, you know, see outside of this realm, uh you know, you can't do that unless you really go into some kind of trance mode. You can't really you can't really um experience enlightenment just you know sitting in front of your computer eating a bowl of cereal right you've got to like put yourself into a heightened state for some people that is you know using substances for other people it's um might be you know a form of exercise or or ritual or ritual dance i mean there's examples of this around the world right of people kind of getting into a frenzied state 
And there's also something about connecting with that, the animal nature, but also the animals themselves and asking them for guidance and for, um, you know, wisdom to know what to do. Cause I mean, think about it. You're going back even, I mean, people obviously still do this today, but you're also talking about traditions that go back to a time long before you could just text someone and be like, Hey, you know, did you get your, your vaccine, right? You're talking about people who are constantly facing an unknown that threatens to swallow them and everyone they love. And, um, you know, you got to find an anchor. You need a, you need a light, you need a way out of that. And you can look, you can either fight the natural world or you can look to it for examples and um, help and guidance. And I think that also is true when you, when you talk about people's relationships with fairies or other kind of magical creatures, that there's a, a guidance that we're seeking from that. Yeah, or a curiosity, right? Oh, there's always. I, the, I mean, if, I, if the I'm out there, if I'm out there looking for a fairy or something, it's just because I'm curious. Mostly then I'm not trying to find the answers for anything. I just want to see it. Yeah. I mean, of course, in, um, especially in Irish mythology, you always have that sort of like the, the, the wayward traveler who's really just not doing anything wrong, just out for a stroll on an evening and runs into, you know, some kind of strange creature who, um, puts them to task. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's probably like anything, any kind of like paranormal, um, investigator will tell you that, you know, you can, you can go to a place thousand times and you can record thousands of hours of EVPs. And it's often the moment when you're not looking or not expecting it, that you'll get that, you'll get that message. Now, Patricio (laughs) says that a silky is a seal in water and lovely lady on land. Have you heard of I guess this uh, half seal, half half human yep. creature. Yep, yep. I wrote about selkies quite a bit in my book of mermaids because they're often kind of um, sort of lumped in because they're sea creatures. But rather than being half fish and half um, person or human like, they are. Um, they can actually take off their entire skins and shape shift into a person usually it is a woman a beautiful woman who can marry and have children um and what you have to do is if you meet a selkie and you find their seal coat you have to hide it and so that's what usually breaks the spell is the selkie opens the trap door or finds an old box buried in the garden and finds the 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 um, coat and once she sees her coat she has to put it back on and there's beautiful mournful um, Scottish folk songs about having to leave behind your entire family because you've been basically you have to transform back out into the uh, into uh, a seal and then you know you think about a seal if you've ever looked at a seal they do have these sort of big sort of mournful eyes and so there's often stories of the selkies looking back toward um, their family and uh, with longing well that's kind of sad are there any reports yeah are there any reports of like these dolphin people shark people or seal people turning into a shark or dolphin while still on land no it's usually the i mean like well seals can come on to land so they're they can be in the water and in land so i think that's why the selkies can kind of like come up onto the beach and shed their coats 
And then, so, you know, and then go walking about. And then if you happen to be on the beach and you find a seal pelt, which would be pretty rare to find one all in its, all in its own there. So you could just scoop that up. But I think um, more frequently with some of the wear dolphins and like those kind of aquatic ones, you have a person going into the water and the transformation takes place in the water. So nobody's just turned into a shark in like the middle of the movie theater or anything. <laughs> and like running around with like human feet and like, just yeah. like like flapping, baby, flapping baby around over and over again, just just to torture, just, just flapping everyone. around on the floor. Like, <laughs> oh crap, this one's supposed no, to happen. No, but I think now. he just wrote a great screenplay. I mean, <laughs> yeah. there's a there, you've always got Cthulhu. You know, when in doubt, there's always some kind of like you know tentacle like thing that can that can drag you down into the deep. So, <laughs> so why do you think all of these stories? I guess not all of them, but a lot of them come out of Ireland. Why? Why is that? Well, I mean, I certainly lean heavily toward I grew up um, with a lot of Irish um, culture, and I um, have always been drawn to the Irish folklore. I, you know, have Irish ancestors. So uh, I think just in talking to me in particular, you'll find that I lean Irish. That's kind of what I know. And, and, um, uh, but I, but I, you could find anything in the in the Celtic mythology. It's it's incredibly rich. So you do have it around the world. I'm just not as well versed in you know the creatures of say India or some of the Chinese folklore. Yeah, um, but I, I guess they have some really good ones in the Philippines too. Oh yeah, and occasionally, um, I mean, those are those are some of the best stories. And um, you know, when people firsthand tell the story of their own, um, the, the stories in their own culture. I think that's always really, really effective and powerful, but I think there's one, uh, similarity in, in all of these stories or the idea of any of this stuff. Now, of course we have those, uh, the warnings, right. Where someone's saying, well, don't go, don't go slip into the bog because you know something will snatch you or stay away from, the sea because the mermaids will grab you, but really, you know, there's like rip tides or rip currents. So there's that sort of practicality element. But I always like to think of it um, as uh, going kind of full circle all the way back to the roots of why we might seek this information outside of our own um, visible world. And I think it's because as humans, if we don't have unanswered questions, if we don't, we, we will never look for solutions, right? Like, again, eating a bowl of cereal, you're just eating a bowl of cereal, watching the, you know, the boob tube, whatever, like not really. Um, and there's a great, we all got to check out once in a while. But if you if you're always looking for something in that unknown, and, and also if you're, if you allow yourself to kind of be transformed, and thinking about these this other realm, whether you buy it hook, line, and sinker, or it just kind of makes you scratch your head and wonder, or you've seen things, it opens your mind in a way that few things really can. You know, it's like the art of story. It's transforming you to another time and place. And isn't that time travel, right? Like you could look at it in a very kind of almost logical way. And without those things, we really, you know, our lives really lack. Our brains can't think outside the box and we end up getting stuck. We get stuck in our ways or we, we can't come up with solutions like, you know, how, how, to, how to 
cure something, how to, how to find cures for diseases or how to think outside of the box and make a flying machine or any of these kinds of things. They involve, they, they require innovative thinking and that requires suspension of doubt. And if you can suspend doubt, then you are able to kind of have that transformative moment. And that's why stories, fairy tales, um, whether you consider them, you know, amusing myths or something more, they're vital. They're a vital part of who we are as humans and who we are um, to each other. So that's my yeah. soapbox. <laughs> is, there, is there anything that you're working on now you could share with us? Ooh. Anything new so I have you a got couple. planned? Well, I'm working on a book right now. I'm um, about a third of the way through it. And it's talking about, it's looking at fairy and folklore and myths, um, but specifically looking at the plants that are involved in those. So it's kind of an ethnobotanical look at some of the fairy and folk tales. So for example, I had mentioned you know, lycanthropic plants or antidotes to lycanthropy. What were those plants? What's the little part of the story that they're from? You have everything from the poison apple um, to the, you know, plants like willow, which we know have a lot of healing and medicinal properties and what aspirin is based on, but also the willow appears around the world and there's more species of it than almost any other plant around the world. So it appears in um, uh, folklore, around the world literally so um it's it's so that's what i'm working on it's a it's a book about you know the botany of lore really yeah you know uh plants are really interesting they communicate with each other through fungi yeah and that is um a whole other element to i mean fungi are like incredibly fascinating and and somewhat terrifying i mean i remember learning that the you got your plant cell, right? We all in, in science class, you have the plant cell and you have your animal cell. Well, fungi are kind of more built like a plant cell, but they have this stuff in them called chitin, which is only found in animal cells. So what, what the heck are they, right? They're like something in between. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty, it's pretty fascinating. I find that whole, um, just kind of an exploration of, um, you know, some of the work that I have, uh, you know, I have written about before, but looking at it more from like a botanist point of view and just kind of, you know, or a amateur, you know, somewhat um, right. self-taught botanist. So that's what I'm working on now. And other than that, you know, I'm always, I also am working on always researching pirates. That's a fun one for me. I've got another book about pirates I'm working on. And oh, um, I've got a yeah, great show on a great show about pirates coming up here pretty soon. I thought everybody would enjoy kind of on the same, uh, the same, um, I guess, uh, way that we did the, uh, wild West outlaw show. We're going to do a pirate show here pretty soon. We got a, a great guest coming on to do a pirate show. So it's pretty Ooh, fun. Oh, I'll watch for that. Yeah. I do. I do love a good pirate show. <laughs> Paul, Paul Besco wants to know, has there been any documented cases of one of these people being caught? either being an autopsy or like after they died, they've been autopsied or, or they just been caught, you know, you know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about like what? the, like the shapeshifter type. Oh, people. like caught shapeshifting. I mean, there's certainly been you know, people who have been caught and thought to be, you know, we mentioned earlier, the girl whose heart was cut out vampires or werewolves. There is actually a hormonal um, disease where you grow excessive hair um, 
So, you know, people, of course, have had their brains put in jars for years. Unfortunately, a lot of people who were thought to be shapeshifters or changelings um, were people with birth defects and were certainly treated as side shows. Um, you probably will find someone who would claim that they had, you know, the, the corpse of a, of a Selkie or something like that. Um, but you know, there was always PT Barnum's Fiji mermaid, which was a total hoax where he sewed together like a fish skeleton and a, um, monkey corpse and called it a mermaid and charged you 25 cents to look at it. Hey, I mean, if that's, that's, you know, (laughs) that's money in the bank, right? (laughs) I mean, his legacy lives on, right? (laughs) Ivan says his brain feels like he's in a jar. (laughs) <laughs> I can respect that. <laughs> so has anybody ever, like, you know, I mean, that's a good question. If you have, like, um, you know, these brains that were kept in jars hundreds and hundreds of years ago, they, they put them in, uh, you know, formaldehyde or whatever they put them in to, to keep them fresh. Has there ever been anybody that's gone back and grabbed one of these brains that might have been sitting <laughs> in a jar for a few hundred years and actually uh, dug into it a little bit, researched it? I mean, probably, I I mean, I don't really know too much about how you specifically looking for evidence of them being otherworldly or folkloric beings. Yeah. Um, I think most people have access to those brains were busy trying to, you know, learn about the human anatomy, which has its own gruesome backstory, as we mentioned, grave robbers and such. Oh yeah, so, the, the early early people trying to figure out about the human body. Don't let the folklorists in with the jars of brains. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure that must have been. Uh, you have to have a special. You have to have a special pass. <laughs> some some gruesome, interesting show. You know, interesting uh, things that they did back to the the bodies of the old, right? Trying to yeah yeah serious some serious body snatching. All Hold right, on. so uh, I guess people are asking the. Um, <laughs> On May 10th, we're having Jay Dolan on to talk about pirates. So that ought to be a good time. Oh, cool. Okay, I'll, be, I'll mark my calendar That'll be May for that. 10th at uh, 6.30, everybody. So so we get that figured out. Varla, thank you very much for coming on again. Thank you for having me. It was delightful. You know, it just goes by, doesn't it? It really does. And I, I um, yeah, I really... I enjoyed talking with you, and I know you have a really active uh, listener base, and I love all the questions. And Yeah, yeah Trevor Finding Davis on, says, on it sounds web. like an easy way to explain away a missing wife. Oh, she turned back, in, <laughs> she turned back into a seal, so sad. <laughs> yeah, sorry. She, she didn't run off to America. She turned into a, she was a selkie. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where she went. She turned into a seal and flopped away. It's the craziest thing you've ever seen. Farla, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and, and I guess we'll uh, we'll wrap up. It's time's up already. Okay, yeah, you can find me on uh my website, which is varlaventura.net. Um I'm on Facebook and Instagram and mildly active on Twitter once a month or so. But I'm reachable in all of those places, and I try and, um, I'll, of course, repost your, your show on my website and such for people to come and join. And, uh, yeah, you can my website is where you'll find out you know, if I've got finally get another book deal or what have you. <laughs> yeah, there you go. 
those, those are always good to get. Yeah. So uh, when That's are you going to be done with your new one? Um, you know, I'm very deadline driven and I don't have a deadline right now. <laughs> so um, certainly kind of just eking along with it. Um, but I've sent it out to a couple publishers because, you know, you can send it not finished when you have a really good idea of what it is and you're kind of working on it and you can give an estimate of how long it'll take you. So I hope to have it done, you know, within the next few months and then hopefully, you know, it takes takes a few months after that to yeah, actually turn it into a book. Maybe you'll hear from somebody and they'll be like, you need to finish this in two weeks. And then, boom, there's your deadline. Yeah, let's hope that doesn't happen. Like two months <laughs> might be a little more realistic. All right. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, remember, you can always find us online. Just go to www.conflictradio.net. You can find us on YouTube, Spreaker, Apple iTunes, and all of your normal podcast catchers. Make sure you give a thumbs up on the video to help the algorithm. Make sure you're subscribed to the channel. If you're not subscribed, hit that notification button. Well, I guess that's going to do it for us. We'll be back on Thursday. Jared's going to be at America Stonehenge, so we're going to be doing some live streaming from there. Not really sure what time that's going to be, but I'll try to announce it uh, uh, the night before on the YouTube channel in the community tab just so everybody can kind of get an idea. Well, until next time, batten down the hatches and be safe. <laughs>